Welcome, welcome, Living Hope. I am Pastor Tim. Grateful to be with you this morning. If you are visiting with us or just got back from the beach or the woods or the lake, uh, welcome to Living Hope. We are going to turn to the Word this morning as we talk about forgiveness. Most people do not find forgiveness very easy, right? It doesn't come naturally for most of us. Even when we know we should forgive someone, it's hard to kind of get our hearts there to actually forgive and let things go, right? Now, if it's some minor infraction, you know, your spouse forgets to stop at the store or your brother borrows your charger without asking, which I feel like happens multiple times a day at our house, um, you can forgive, right? Something like that. But what if it's a minor infraction, but what if it happens again and again and again? How many times do you need to forgive the person? Like, when is enough enough? You should have learned, you know, that's it. I'm no longer going to forgive you. What if the person never asks for forgiveness? Some people say you only need to forgive someone if they say they're sorry and ask you, right? Then and only then will you forgive them. But what about if it's not some small wrong that's been done against you? What if it's some major offense? What if it's something with malicious intent? Someone betrays you or hurts you physically, are we supposed to forgive them then? Of course, the world is, is not much help in trying to resolve these questions and these difficult questions of forgiveness. I think the world has a complicated relationship with forgiveness, I would say. More and more, forgiveness seems to be falling out of favor in the world around us. In many instances, there is no forgiveness, right? It's just one strike and you're out. If you're guilty of certain sins in our culture that are deemed unforgivable, well, then you're just canceled. Forgiveness is not an option. But still, even outside of the church, when it comes to more minor offenses, I think forgiveness is seen as a virtue. But the problem is, I think outside of what we're going to look at this morning, forgiveness is kind of just an empty concept. Someone might say to you, why are you so hung up on what your coworker said to you last week at the meeting? You know, just, just let it go. You just forgive the person and move on. But what are they really meaning? Isn't, isn't forgiveness in that sense just another way to, to say, just sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen? It just seems empty. There's nothing behind that forgiveness. We're not the first people to struggle with forgiveness. We're going to read this morning, Peter is going to ask Jesus about forgiveness, ask a question that, that many of us have probably asked ourselves. Turn there to Matthew chapter 18. We're continuing in our series this summer on parables of Jesus, stories of the kingdom, these stories that Jesus told to help us understand what life is like in the kingdom of God. And, and in Matthew chapter 18, we're going to pick up in verse 21, Peter is going to ask Jesus this question. Now Jesus has just been teaching about what to do when someone sins against you. And the focus of the teaching beginning in verse 15 is, is on what to do when a fellow brother or sister sins against you and how to bring them under correction in the church. But Peter then follows up this, this teaching with a question about forgiveness. Jesus is going to answer his question, then he's going to tell us a story. He's going to give us a parable to understand what forgiveness is like in the kingdom of God. And we will see, Jesus' main point is that we are called to forgive as God forgave. That ultimately, forgiveness in our hearts is meant to reflect and emulate and model the forgiveness that we have received from God. To forgive someone means you give them a complete pardon, just as God has done for us. It means you wipe the slate clean. Someone is released from guilt. They're released from your anger, from, from any, any sort of punishment or retribution that you would put on them for their wrongdoing. 
You no longer hold the wrong against them. You no longer hold a grudge against them. That's the definition of forgiveness because that's what God has done to us in Christ and that's what he calls us to do for others in Christ. And so we're going to read and unpack this morning beginning in Matthew 18, 21 and I want us to see five principles. Five principles that I believe will help us to understand forgiveness but more than that, I think if we can grasp, if our hearts can grasp these realities will enable us to forgive, to forgive as God forgave us. So we're going to look at these five things. Uh, my daughter recently said that she thinks my job is, is just making lists. So we have a list of five for you this morning. She's not entirely wrong. Um, the call to forgive as God forgave. So let me pray again and, and then we will dive in. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this disciple Matthew that was rescued from his life as a sinner and a tax collector that was called to follow you, that was full of the Holy Spirit, that took copious notes during the earthly ministry of Jesus, that full of the Holy Spirit wove those notes with Old Testament prophecy into the gospel account of Matthew that included parable upon parable, story upon a story to help us understand the kingdom. And so we pray now that the same Holy Spirit that inspired Matthew to write these words, the same Holy Spirit that guarded this account as it's been passed down for generations, faithfully proclaiming the word of God to us, we pray now that, that Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts, that you would empower us to forgive in a way that would literally be supernatural, to reflect the forgiveness we have in Christ. And so we thank you, Jesus, for saving us. We thank you for forgiving our debt and give us grace to turn now and to forgive others in your name for your glory. Come be among us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to be settled, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. Amen. 
So first of all, we see here in, in Peter's question that Christians are expected to freely forgive, right? Peter asks what I think is a very reasonable question after Jesus just got done teaching about how to handle sins in the church and how to correct one another. And Peter says, look, if someone keeps sinning against me, how much do I have to forgive them? Right? This is not hypothetical. Parents, you know you, you may continually lose your temper with your children. Spouses, you know that you might continually be insensitive even after your spouse has shared with you, look, when you say that, when you look at me that way, it's hurtful, and, and still you're going to do it again. Kids, let's be honest, there are going to be times where you'll continue to disobey your parents, right? We have friends, and, and, and we disappoint them, and then we disappoint them again, and then we disappoint them again, right? This is not hypothetical. Now, Peter, I think, probably thinks he's being quite generous by saying, how many times, Lord? Seven? Like, not two or three, right? Like seven times we should forgive someone who hurts us. I think it's more than, it's more than enough time for you to get your act together, right? Like, Mike, if we set up lunch and, and seven times you don't show up, like, that's it, I'm done. You should have learned your lesson, right? Like, it's pretty generous. But Christians are called to go beyond what is reasonable. The measurement is not what seems reasonable in your mind. That's sort of Jesus' point when he says, no, forgive your brother. And there's some, some disagreement, I guess, in the mathematically how to translate the, the Greek. Some say 77, some say seven times 70. Either way, the point is Jesus is saying a lot, right? Now, and Jesus is not saying, look, if it's 70 times seven, he's not saying, look, forgive somebody 490 times, but you keep track. And that when they, when they sin against you 491 times, then you're done, right? Like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying more than you can count, Again and again and again, graciously forgive, pour out forgiveness, don't keep tabs, forgive until it seems unreasonable, and then keep going with your forgiveness. Now we're going to continue to unpack the parable, because I think the parable is super helpful in helping our hearts get to the place where we can actually do this, but the first step toward embracing forgiveness is this reality that Christians are expected to give, seven times 70 times 70 times 70. This is Jesus' expectation. And in those moments where you're filled with, with anger and bitterness and frustration and you don't want to give your friend or spouse or sibling, remind yourself that forgiveness is not optional. And whether the issue for you this morning is, is some repeated frustrating hurts that are part of everyday life and you realize they're not big deals, but they just grate on your nerves, you know, because again and again... Even small things become big things. Or maybe it's some traumatic event of your past that you simply have not been able to let go of, that just that brews inside of you. God's word calls us to be generous with forgiveness, not to hold a grudge, but to freely forgive. We're expected to freely forgive. Now, you might be able to rationalize minor offenses, right, even if they're over and over. Well, what about if it's a particularly heinous offense, Right? What about those that have suffered physical abuse or, or have been the victims of adultery or betrayal or some kind of blatant deceit that's led to your ruin? That's especially unreasonable. But some would say it's even impossible. Yet in God's kingdom, it is possible. Right? And we've heard stories, we've heard news stories of a tragic shooting that happens and we see the, the picture of the grieving mother and then a few months later, we see that same mother show up in the courtroom you know these accounts? Have you seen these powerful testimonies? And she looks her son's killer in the eyes and says, I forgive you. And, and we find out very often it's motivated by their faith in Christ. And there's powerful representations of forgiveness even in the face of, of, of murder. 
But what do we do when the offense against us is both something major and it's also repeated? What do you do when someone continues to hurt you? Now look, Jesus has been clear. We're called to forgive them. But I also want to be clear. I don't think that means you act like it never happened and you continue to allow the person to hurt you, to walk all over you. Hear me. Christian forgiveness does not mean you forfeit your right to protect yourself from hurt in the future. Does that make sense? Let's see, sadly, this teaching has sometimes been distorted in the church, and people are given the expectation that they need to continue in an abusive marriage or in a harmful situation. But that's not what God's Word teaches us. God's Word teaches us that we are to love others. How? As we love ourselves. The implication being you're to love yourself. You're to protect yourself. And so you need to be discerning, you need the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but forgiveness and reconciliation are two different concepts. Forgiveness only takes one person. You are called to forgive before God. Reconciliation takes two. We are always called to forgive even if reconciliation isn't possible. And sometimes what that means practically is that you need to forgive the person and you also need to cut them out of your life. Because they've made it clear that reconciliation is not going to happen. And so, as you love them in the way that you love yourself, you forgive them, you genuinely let it go, and then you move on. And you don't allow that person to continue to hurt you. Does that, does that make sense, what I'm saying? But again, Christians are expected to freely forgive. But God doesn't just expect us to forgive and to, to reach some, some irrational, seemingly unattainable position. He gives us the reasons for forgiveness, the power to forgive. See, see, forgiveness in God's kingdom has a basis. There's good reason. We're called to forgive as God forgave, and that's the point of this story that Jesus tells. And we'll see in this story what our hearts need to understand, what our hearts need to embrace if we can truly get to the place where we let something go, where we pardon someone and forgive them. And so we see, secondly, this morning, and we see, I think the biggest point of the parable is that God has forgiven you an immense debt. Right, the story that Jesus tells is the story of, of the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a king, a king who calls all of his servants together, all of those who work for him, and he's over the years owed money, and they have back debt, and he's going to settle accounts. And there's one particular servant who shows up, and he owes a boatload. Right? He owes the king, we're told, 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was a unit of money equivalent to about 200 200,000 years worth of, of wages for a day laborer. So I didn't calculate it, but, but people have calculated it to be over $6 billion that this servant owed the king. Now, the parable is exaggerated, right? You couldn't practically rack up a debt like that. The parable is exaggerated to make, make a point. Jesus is saying it's an incomprehensible amount. Imagine the biggest amount of money you ever owed somebody, right, and then, and then multiply it by a billion. There's no way that the servant could ever pay off the master. And so the master ordered him and his family to be sold to pay off what debt he could, I guess. Now, again, remember, these are parables. Parables are not always showing one-to-one -one correlation between us and God. They're showing us a few big-picture lessons. But in the story, the king does what is within his rights, and he sells off the family into slavery. 
Now the servant, realizing his desperate situation, he falls down before the king and he's now begging, he's begging, have patience with me, I just need a little more time, I just need a little more time. Now of course that's absurd, right? A thousand lifetimes wouldn't be enough for the servant to be able to pay back the king, but he's begging, he's begging and pleading for mercy, and in that moment the king has compassion. Do you see that? The king has compassion. He has pity on the servant. And so in his mercy, he reverses the position. He no longer enacts judgment. He says, I will forgive you all of your debt. And the king graciously releases the man to go free. It's a powerful story. Can you imagine being the servant in that story? Put yourself in his position. Imagine leaving the courtroom knowing that you just got your life back. Imagine how much lighter you would feel, how grateful you would feel. Knowing that like everything was just about to be ended, but now you have been redeemed. You now have your life back. Imagine the kind of gratitude you would live the rest of your life with. Imagine the kind of freedom you would live knowing you and your whole family could have been enslaved, but now you've walked free. But that's not what happens to the guy in the parable, is it? The guy in this story, he leaves the king's court, and what does he do? He goes immediately to find another servant who owed him money. This is crazy. He goes to find another guy that owes him 100 denarii. A denarii was equivalent to about five months' worth of wages, or the, the 100 denarii would have been. So we're talking like, you know, depending upon your salary, maybe twelve dollars to $15,000. That's a lot of money, but, but you could pay that off, right? Pennies compared to the debt that he had just been forgiven. And so he grabs the guy. Anybody want to come up for a demonstration? He grabs the guy and he starts choking. Now stay in your seat, Brent. He starts... I don't want to choke you. He starts choking him and shaking him. Pay me what you owe. Pay me what you owe. Now, I think Jesus is, is using a little dark comedy, don't you think? I mean, I think this is meant to be a little funny. Like, really? This is ridiculous. He's choking, screaming in the guy's face. Pay me what you owe after he just was forgiven a $6 billion debt in a life of slavery. I think you're supposed to laugh a little bit and say, that's ridiculous. Who would do that? I mean, clearly, this servant has no grasp of what's just happened to him. He has no understanding of the immense debt that has been forgiven him. If he did, he would have forgiven, easily forgiven the lesser debt. This guy is ungrateful. He's cold. He's stingy. He's certainly selfish. He failed to have any grasp of the immensity of what's just happened to him, the significance of what's just happened to him. And that forgiveness that he had just re received from the king had, had no impact on his other relationships. And this, Jesus says, is a picture of forgiveness in the kingdom of God. How much, Christian, are you called to forgive just as much as God has forgiven you? And the New Testament is clear that forgiveness, that our forgiving others should be driven by a recognition of how much we have been forgiven, of the immense, incomprehensible debt that God has forgiven us. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, right? At the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 14, Jesus teaches more on the principle and he says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Listen, this is a hard word from Jesus, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Trespasses there are wrongs and sins, right? Walking in areas of life where you don't have the right to walk, you're trespassing. Now listen, the point is not that Jesus is going to withhold forgiveness 
waiting to see if you will actually forgive other people. I believe the point is that if you have truly received God's compassion, if you've truly been forgiven, then that compassion will necessarily spill out into others. It's an indication of God's grace and, and God's work in your life. Your willingness and your ability to forgive those around you means that your heavenly Father has forgiven you. See, sin is a great debt. Like in the parable, we can think of our wrongs, our brokenness, our rebellion against God. We can think of that as a debt, a debt that we could never really repay. And $6 billion, honestly, that's just a glimpse of the debt that we owed the Lord. See, look at it this way. God created you, right? He gave you life. And he says, because I've given you life, you owe me your life. You owe me a life of dedication and obedience. But instead, apart from Christ, you and I lived our lives by our own rules, dishonoring the Lord, turned away from him. And every time we turn, every time we act, every time our heart is not to love and honor and serve God, that racks up a debt. Disobedience, dishonor, selfishness, our arrogance, our betrayal, our deceit, exalting ourselves above God, not living with God as first in your life. What we call sin, disobedience, that's, it's a debt that you're racking up against, against a good God, a creator who's over all, who deserves your all. And so in James 2.10, the word makes this startling observation and says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it means that the most righteous, the, the, the man or woman in here that's at the top of the list, I mean, you're as close as any of us to following God's law. The scripture says you mess up one time, you're guilty of, of all of the law, because the law is one package. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. You slip up once, we're accountable for all of the law. And yet despite this, listen, despite this, God sent his Savior sent his son, our savior, to receive our punishment, to pay our debt. See, Jesus climbing up on the cross, yes, was receiving the punishment for our sins, but it was also a payment, his life for our life. Giving of himself that we could be free, that our debt could be canceled. See, the call of, of, of Christ, the call of the gospel is to receive this mercy, to trust in Christ, to fall down and plead for mercy and know that you can be transformed that as you confess and as you trust in Jesus, your debt is paid. Your slate is wiped clean. You are no longer a slave to sin and death and the devil. You are now released. And you have this unfathomable mercy through Christ. And so the call of this parable is to believe it, hold it, understand it, and to be transformed. Be transformed by God's love for you. And so now when somebody else hurts you, when somebody else lets you down, even those that are closest to you that wrong you, the call, the unreasonable call that, that we have to forgive them is rooted in God's compassion for you. It's rooted in the immense debt that God has forgiven you. The Apostle Paul would put it like this in Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, and if you're like me, you may have many, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
Christian brother, Christian sister, forgiveness is not optional. We are called to recognize and acknowledge, to, to, to grasp the immensity of God's forgiveness for you and let that drive you to forgive others. Make sense? Thirdly, we need to understand that, that, that you and I are guilty of wrongs as well. See, what makes the, the servant's unforgiveness in the story so absurd is that he was guilty of the exact same type of wrong. Right? They both borrowed money. They both failed to pay it back. It should have been easy for the servant to go out and to identify with the other servant and to have compassion on him. It wasn't like, you know, he borrowed money from the king and didn't pay it back and then he went out and, and, and found another servant that, that, you know, stole all of his possessions and burned his house down, right? You could maybe understand, like, those are two different things. But it's no, the, the servant did the same exact thing, borrowed money from him and didn't pay it back. The other servant, does the, he responds the exact same way. He falls down the way the other servant did. He pleads for compassion. He says virtually the same words. Have patience with me and I will pay you back. Like that should have been like, oh, I, that sounds familiar. Wait a minute, that's what I just said 45 minutes ago to the king. But instead, the ungrateful, cold-hearted man drags him to the local authorities, has him imprisoned until he can pay back the relatively small debt that he owed. Which, which again, I think is absurdly comical. He's going to throw him in jail. How's he going to pay him back then? Right? He's shooting himself in the foot. Listen, for our hearts to be open to forgive others, we must recognize that we are guilty of wronging others as well. And when we refuse to forgive someone, we are puffing ourselves up above them. See, forgiveness requires humility. Unforgiveness is ultimately arrogance. We are all guilty of disobeying God. We're all guilty of hurting other people. We all need the same forgiveness that God is calling us to give to others. See, forgiveness requires an attitude of humility that's not exalting yourself above the other person. They don't deserve my forgiveness. I thought about years and years ago when I was a younger man and a friend of mine had lied. I didn't know he lied. He told our group of friends something. He'd been accused of something and he lied and said, that never happened. I didn't do it. I believed him. I stuck up for him. Many other people thought, you know, that he had done. And I said, no, he told me he didn't. Of course, he's not going to lie to me. And, and for weeks, I stuck up for him only to find out he eventually confessed and said, yeah, I lied. I actually did it. Man, I was betrayed. I felt hurt. I was deceived. I was lied to. I had put my reputation on the line. And for months after that, I held a grudge against this guy. Why in the world would I forgive him after what he did to me, the way he made me look, right? Now, what's the problem with that? Don't you think that I've probably deceived people? Don't you think that I've probably told lies to cover things up or half-truths? As my mom said, a lie is anytime you intentionally deceive somebody, whether it's through what you say or what you don't say. And here I am, unwilling to forgive this person, arrogantly puffing myself up like I'm better than him when, when certainly I've done similar things. You've heard the expression, right, there, but for the grace of God go I. What, what does that mean? The idea is that, is that we need to have compassion for people when we recognize that if it wasn't for God's grace, we might end up in the same position they would, right? We see somebody and we have pity on them and we think, yeah, if God's grace wasn't manifested in my life, I might have done the same thing. I might have ended up in the same place. And grasping that reality should move us towards compassion and forgiveness, now that idea there, but for the grace of God go I, it's pretty straightforward when the way someone has hurt you is similar to the way you have hurt others, right? I'm constantly late. You guys know that. So when somebody is, is late meeting me, it should be, 
should be, pretty easy for me to let it go and forgive them, right? Because they're wronging me in a minor way, but I've done that hundreds of times in my life. If you've ever lied to your spouse, when they lie to you, it should be easier to forgive them. Yeah, I kind of remember I did the same thing last year, so I guess I need to let it go with them, right? This line of thinking there, but for the grace of God go I, should enable us to forgive someone if, if you know you're guilty of the same thing. But what if how they have hurt you is drastically different than any ways you've ever hurt them or anyone else? What if it's something that they've done that you can't identify with? You simply say, I can't fathom, right? I, I know of spouses that... One spouse has committed adultery, and then years later, the other one does as well. If you've committed adultery, you should be able to get to the place where where you can forgive your spouse if they do the same thing to you. But what about if you simply can't say, you simply say, I can't say there, but for the grace of God go I, because you know what? Even without God's grace, I would never do what that person did to me or to those that love me. There are things that we feel that, right? I could never comprehend doing that. Listen, the depravity of your heart may not have unraveled to the same degree as you see in that other person, but we have to recognize that we have the same kind of depravity in our heart. Hear me. There's a differences of degrees and differences of kind. On some level, any sin we see in the world, I think we, we need to be able to identify with that guilt. We need to recognize that we share the same type of spiritual depravity and brokenness that led to their sin. You may say, I would never, I would never be so full of angry rage that I would kill someone and take their life. Okay, but have you been angry? Have you allowed anger to foster in your heart with with, with feelings and, and words of hatred? You might never abuse someone. But have you disrespected? Have you belittled others? Have you been driven by selfishness? You may never commit adultery against your spouse, but have you lusted? Have you daydreamed about someone else other than the one to whom God has given you? You say, I, I would never do hard drugs. I would never do cocaine or heroin and, 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 and reap destruction like those who do. But have you ever used food or, or alcohol as an escape to numb yourself? See, as heinous and depraved as as some of these acts are, and there are many more, are they primarily different kinds of sins than the ones you have committed, or are they different degrees of the same sins that you and I are guilty of before the Lord? Do you you follow me? See, don't be too quick to, to point your finger. Now, I want to be careful here when I talk about this distinction between, between degrees of sin and kinds of sin, because the Bible does not say that all sins are equal. And I am not saying that all sins are equivalent. The Bible actually says that some sins are greater than others. Some sins have more severe, more worse impact on the people around us. And there is a difference between degrees of sin, and that difference is huge. And I'm not trying to downplay the difference between hating someone and murdering them. Clearly, there's a difference. I don't want to equate the common moral lapses that we do on a regular basis with the most despicable types of sins. There is a difference, but don't be too quick. What I'm saying is don't be too quick to exalt yourself into a completely unrelated category of sinner, right? Like there are these sinners that do like the really bad stuff, but I'm just a regular sinner. Like there's this kind and there's that kind. No, no, no. There's degrees. 
And when you put yourself in a different category of sinner, even without God's grace, I would never do that. You put forgiveness out of reach. You hear that? You put forgiveness out of reach, as the man in the parable, I think, did. See, compassion and forgiveness comes when you recognize that you are guilty of wrongs as well. And before God, you're just as broken, just as desperate, just as helpless, just as as in need of God's grace and forgiveness. We're all sinners. But fourthly, I want us to see that, that forgiveness means recognizing that if you hold on to the hurts of your past, it will ultimately destroy you. It will ultimately destroy your heart. See, in the parable, when the guy sees the one who owed him money, he grabs him by the throat and chokes him. It's a bit of an understatement, but I'll say it anyway. I think the guy had some bitterness issues, right? Can you imagine if he went the rest of his life living that way? Can you imagine if the king never intervened and every time someone wronged him or hurt him, he grabbed him around the neck, he choked him in anger, he tried to have him thrown into prison. Can you imagine that's the guy living the rest of his life with that kind of bitterness and hatred? What a horrible life it would be, right? He, He would ultimately just destroy himself, destroy his heart. Holding on to past hurts will destroy you. It will destroy your heart. Listen to the word of God in Hebrews 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You know what that means, right? The root of bitterness. Some of you are like, yeah, I've I've dealt with that. See, unforgiveness, ultimately, if you hold on to unforgiveness, it makes you bitter. It makes you hard. It makes you angry. And bitterness is a root, a root that that will dig deep into your heart and will have drastic consequences. Here's what it looks like. Anybody heard of of this strangler fig? You can see this graphic on the screen. Karen and I saw these on a trip to Costa Rica. And they're only found in, in, in tropical forests and places where there's very dense jungles where there's little sunlight on the ground. And, and what happens is the seeds of a strangler fig get dropped up into the, top, the tops of the branches of the trees. And, and birds drop them in the, in the tops of the trees and they, they begin to germinate and take root up in the branches. But of course there's, there's no ground up there to, 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 for the plants to root in. And so you can see those green like vines. Those are actually the roots that get sent down along the sides of the tree until they grow down sometimes hundreds of feet into the ground. They take root in the ground and that tree all the way up, the, the, the strangler fig all the way up begins to grow. It now has roots in the ground. And so it's, it branches upward and outward. You can see there in the, in the second slide that it begins to take over. You can see the result. Look at this. Eventually, that, the roots from that strangler fig so engulf the other tree that given enough time, it will literally choke out the life from the host tree. And it uses up all the sunlight, all the water, all of the nutrients until that tree that was originally there just rots away and eventually can disintegrate. And you will see trees like that that are hollow because those roots choked out the life from the existing tree, and that is what unforgiveness does in our hearts. 
See, the root of bitterness will dig deep into a person's heart and will grow and will expand into every corner, taking over every aspect of their thoughts and their words and their deeds, will choke out everything else until the person is left empty. You see that? Craig Groeschel wrote, wrote this book called The Christian Atheist. We read this together years ago. The subtitle of the book is Believing in God, but, believe, but Living as if He Doesn't Exist. The idea that, that yeah, I, I believe in God, I say I believe in God, but my life, well, I, I live like He doesn't exist. And, and, and the author has a chapter on unforgiveness. It's an area where we say we believe in Jesus, but we live in reality, well, maybe not. And the author shares in, this, in the book the horrible account of how his sister's sixth grade teacher had sexually molested her. And he shares how his instinct was, was to be angry, to want revenge, to want to cause this guy as much pain as possible. He didn't want to forgive him. And for many, many years, he says that he held on to this anger. And he says this in the book. He says, the root of bitterness grows in the soil of hurt that has not been dealt with properly. Unknown to me, a root of bitterness started to grow in my heart. Roots absorb and store, and my heart absorbed and stored hurt, anger, hatred, and thoughts of revenge. Love keeps no record of wrong, but bitterness keeps detailed accounts. Some of us know what that's like, detailed accounts, things that happened weeks or months or even years ago, and many of us know how destructive bitterness can be, how it eats away at you, it consumes you with anger and resentment, it ultimately steals and chokes your peace. You heard the expression that holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick and die, right? You can't drink poison and expect it to have an impact on somebody else. You're, you're poisoning yourself. The unforgiveness is causing bitterness and, and, and causing you to become sick and die. And I've counseled with couples, and they can recount details of past arguments with astonishing clarity and the precise damaging words that happened to them as though it happened earlier that day, and they say, no, this was 10 years ago. Now, thankfully, I've been blessed with a terrible memory, so that hasn't been a challenge for me. But you cannot possibly move forward unless you let go of the past. See, without releasing the hurt, the bitterness of past pains, and some of them, most of them are probably the most intimate people in our lives, right? A coworker in a previous job that you had 20 years ago, probably going to forget about that. But a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a lifelong friend, whew, you hold on to that and that bitterness will ultimately destroy you from the inside out. But through forgiveness, friends, listen, we can find life. As I said, forgiveness is part of the process of reconciliation, but, but, but forgiveness and reconciliation are different. If you're in a relationship where you're holding on to grudges or bitterness, where you can recount those conversations as though they happened yesterday, the Lord's call to you is to forgive. Maybe it's somebody that you no longer have relationship with. Maybe reconciliation is not possible, but you need to forgive the person for your own sake, even if reconciliation doesn't happen, which requires two people. Forgiveness, which only requires you, you before the Lord can and must still happen so that your heart can find peace, so that you can stay right with God. Now listen, this forgiveness, and many of you are praying or you will pray before the service ends, pray and say, God, give me grace to forgive. Help me to let it go. I want to let it go. 
Forgiveness is often a process. Yes, we plead with God. God, give me grace to let go of those hurts, to let go and to forgive. And sometimes God delivers you in an instant, and, and I will stand with you and pray, and we'll pray today. God, bring forgiveness. Release me from that bitterness. But often forgiveness is a process, and it may happen over time. It may happen in phases. Allow the Lord to do that work. And every day, say, God, would you root out that bitterness a little more today? I want, to, I want to address another issue because some people say, well, I'll forgive, but I never forget. And I think sometimes, you, some, some people might be genuine. Some people just use that as a justification, right, to claim that they've forgiven, but to hold on to their anger and bitter. Well, yeah, I forgive them. Of course I forgive them, but I'm not going to forget. There's a question. Are we called both to forgive and to forget? Is, it, is forgetting a necessary part of true forgiveness? I think the scripture can, can give us some clarity, and I want to tread a little lightly with this, but, but God says about himself several times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that he will forgive our sins and what? And remember them no more. That's what our Heavenly Father says. He will not remember our sins. Now listen, God is all-knowing, right? I don't think it's the case that he literally couldn't remember when I lost my temper with my kids or the times that I've, you know, sinned or the times that I've lusted, like, God's all-knowing. The point of him saying, I will forgive your sins and remember them no more, I think the point is that he doesn't want to. He's not going to. He will choose not to remember our sins. Our offenses before God are no longer a conscious part of how he thinks of us. He looks at me and he thinks about me and he doesn't think about those things. He chooses not to remember our sins. And God, we've made clear, calls us to forgive as he has forgiven. We are called to forgive with his level of compassion. And so I do think that both forgiving and forgetting is possible. And I actually think it's, it's part of the expectation for the followers of Jesus. Now this has to be the work of the Holy Spirit, right? God's not going to show up and give you like a men in black, you know, memory wand. And anytime you want to, you know, forget about somebody, just whoop. It's got to be the internal work of the Holy Spirit to give you grace to, to forget what happened. To remove the active memory, what I would call the active memory. I'm not saying if somebody sat you down and said, can you recall what you know, happened in your house growing up? But in terms of how you're actively living and thinking, no longer consciously aware of, of those hurts. I think that we can live without the painful memories impacting our daily interactions, impacting our daily sense of self, impacting our daily relationships. Many people say, well, well, yeah, that's hard for me because I have trust issues. You don't know what my mother did to me, what my father did to me, what my first husband did to me. I, I believe that God, by the supernatural grace of God, can overcome those memories, those hurts, can rebuild trust. What does 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says? It says that love is not resentful. It keeps no record of wrong. That means the list of things that your spouse has said and done to you, you don't have that list any. The, li the list is gone. Because you've forgiven. And by God's grace, he's given you the compassion and the ability to, to, to consciously not hold on to those memories. See, when the true Spirit of God fills you and true forgiveness is unleashed in your heart. It pushes out bitterness. It's possible to live a life free from the haunting memories of your past. And when you forgive, you reflect God. And anytime we reflect God, he is honored. He is glorified. But if that's not enough to motivate you, can I just say this? Seek forgiveness for selfish reasons. 
Seek to forgive the other person for your own self, to protect your own heart from the root of bitterness, from choking out the life that's inside of you. Because forgiveness reflects and honors God, but it blesses you. Fifthly, lastly, I think we see in the parable that that God is going to have vengeance on those that have hurt you. That, That this is actually, hear me out, this is a critical part of forgiveness. See, look at the parable. After the servant had been forgiven of his immense debt, he shouldn't have cared. He should not have cared a lick about that guy that owed him the money. He should have been able to walk right by him, smiled and waved. Did you hear what happened? I no longer have a debt, right? But instead, what does he do? He grabs him. He chokes him, screaming at him, pay me what you owe. He finally takes the man to the authorities, has this servant put in prison. Not only does this show ingratitude and a lack of compassion, but I believe it shows that he had no trust in the king, the king that had just been merciful and gracious to him, the king that was overseeing the land, the king that he knew was in the process of settling all accounts in the kingdom. He ignored that reality and he took matters into his own hands, forgetting that there was a a just king with a watchful eye governing the kingdom. And the man had no authority. He had no authority to take vengeance on this servant, no authority to punish him. But he did it anyway, and once the king found out what happened, he takes the forgiven servant and he says, you, you, you ungrateful servant, who are you to do this? This is wrong. He releases the one man and he puts the forgiven servant in, in, in prison. In verse 35, at the end of the story, Jesus breaks it now out of the narrative and he simply says in verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, friends, listen, just like in the story, we have a just king, a just king that will oversee every injustice in his kingdom. And we are called to forgive, listen, because carrying out judgment and justice is not your place. It's not your responsibility. And once you realize that, you can be free to forgive. Once you realize that it's not your responsibility to right every wrong. Now, as we've said, forgiveness is hard. This does not come naturally. It doesn't seem right, right? We think things like, why should I forgive them when they did such a horrible wrong to me? We think, I don't want to give them the satisfaction of letting them know that I've forgiven them. Or we think it's only right for me to hold on to this hurt. It's only right for me to hold on to this hurt and if possible, get revenge. If possible, even if I can't make them pay, at least I'm going to make them feel really bad and, and, and guilt them and shame them for as long as I possibly can. That just seems right. It just seems fair. Our hearts say things like that. But here's what the Word of God says in Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, we're not called to avenge ourselves. We're called to bless our enemies, and your enemy is anyone who hurts you, who you're angry with. To bless them, and it says that it will heap burning coals on their head, and those burning coals are going to do one of two things. They're going to, your grace and your, your compassion is going to lead them to repentance and to seek forgiveness, or it's just going to end up in resulting in, in greater judgment for them in the end. But either way, vengeance belongs to God, not to you. 
And we need to understand that, that the just vengeance of God is a reality in our world. And you know what that does? It frees us. It frees us to say, I can let it go. I can forgive because it's in God's hands. See, listen, listen. This is what I mean when I say forgiveness in the world to me just seems like an empty concept because apart from an understanding of what Christ has done on the cross, apart from an understanding of a good creator, sustainer, judge of the universe, I don't know what forgiveness means because forgiveness is not just, oh, well, it's no big deal. I'll just forget about how that person hurt me. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is this. What they did to me was wrong and it hurt and I have every right to be angry. They have every right to be punished, but that's not for me. And forgiveness says how I've been hurt is such a big deal, it's more than I can handle. It's more than I can take care of. And so I'm going to give it into my, my loving Heavenly Father's hands. I'm going to give it to Him to handle. I'm going to let go of it, and I'm going to forgive and be free. Do you see what that does to your heart? Do you see the freedom that that gives? And again, whether, whether this is a, 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 a snippy remark that your spouse said to you on the way to church today, or if this is a pain and a hurt from your childhood some major abuse, a criminal offense, some, some long-standing trauma in your heart. Hear the words, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And when we know that there's a good, wise, all-knowing, impartial, just God, we can forgive. We can let it go and put it in his hands. See, listen, forgiveness must always be backed by justice. Just like in, in our relationship with God, God forgave us. Why? How? Because justice was fulfilled. Our sins are canceled because Jesus paid the debt. And now, because the debt has been paid, he can forgive the debt. God's mercy does not undermine his justice, and our mercy doesn't undermine justice either. Mercifully forgiving someone and loving them is grounded in the justice of God. Hear that. I remember a man sharing with me one time in the church how his daughter had been sexually assaulted. And of course, he was wrestling with all kinds of anger, with all kinds of grief. But he said, you know what? I, I somehow, I'm not plotting revenge. He was seeking justice. The family was seeking justice in the court. Because you know what he said? He said, regardless of what happens in a human institution, he said, I know that the perpetrator will have to face God one day. And that brought him peace and that miraculously enabled him to, to forgive and to let it go. Now, now we could take this too far. I don't think that, that we should become infatuated with the judgment of God. I don't think we should become infatuated with the idea and start daydreaming about, about what's going to happen when the person faces God and receives judgment. But, but I think it's a reality that should give us comfort. Wayne Grudem, as he's looking at Romans 12, says that understanding the final judgment of God is what enables us to forgive. Listen to this long quote. You guys know I love Grudem. He's super helpful. In this way, whenever we have been wronged, we can give into God's hands any desire to harm or pay back the person who has wronged us, knowing that every wrong in the universe will ultimately be paid for. Either it will, it will turn out to have been paid for by Christ when he died on the cross, if the wrongdoer becomes a Christian, or it will be paid for at the final judgment for those who do not trust in Christ for salvation. But in either case, we can give the situation into God's hands and then pray that the wrongdoer will trust Christ for salvation and thereby receive forgiveness of his or her sins. This thought should keep us from harboring bitterness or resentment in our hearts for injustices we have suffered that have not been made right. God is just 
And we can leave these situations in his hands knowing that he will someday right all wrongs and give absolutely fair rewards and punishments. Isn't that super helpful? Aren't you glad you bought that big systematic theology book? Friends, listen, either God will handle the hurts of this life by punishing the person for their wrongs or at the end of life, at the end of their life, or Jesus will serve as their substitute. But either way, justice is done, and so we can forgive. We can forgive because we are not ultimately the judge of this life, and all wrongs will be, be righted, and God loves you, and God sees you, and he knows what's happened. And his, his sovereign, just wrath will come upon those that have hurt his loved ones, that do not repent. And so we can hold on to this reality and we can let go of our hurts because we are called, hear it again, we're called to forgive others as God has forgiven you. And so listen, if you haven't already, let's make this personal. As the worship team comes up, ask yourself, maybe jot it down or make a mental note, how have you been hurt? How have you been wronged? What are the things that right now are stirring in you, have the potential to stir bitterness in you? Again, maybe it's just the ongoing minor annoyances by friends and family. Maybe you're just a frustrated, critical person because of the way other people treat you, and you feel that you're not respected, you're not appreciated. And maybe no matter how many times you've said to your spouse, please don't speak to me in that tone, they continue to do it. Maybe your boss at work continues to overlook you or mistreat you. Maybe your friends around you, your teammates, harp on you and, and drag you down. Maybe it's just, it's just the minor annoyances of life, but that stirs frustration and anger and bitterness. Or again, maybe there's some distant betrayal in your life, some distant area of abuse from your past that just it, it weighs you, weighs you down like a rock around your throat. We've heard this morning that Christians are expected to freely forgive. This is our calling in the kingdom, walk in obedience and forgive others. We've heard that, that, that God has forgiven us an immense debt, that we are called to forgive others because, because we owe God a debt we could not repay, but through the work of Christ, we are forgiven. We're enabled to give that same type of undeserved freedom to others. And, and friends, let's, let's not ever puff ourselves up. Let's remember that each of us are guilty of wrongs as well. See, when we are open and honest and, and, and humble about the reality of our own wrongs, I believe that will give us compassion for others. But we also just need to recognize it very personally, very intimately, that if we hold on to these hurts and wrongs, it will stir up bitterness in our hearts and that root will grow until it chokes out every resemblance of peace and joy in your life. And fifthly, let's, let's have peace in the mercy of God, but in the justice of God, that he will have vengeance on those that have hurt you. It's not your responsibility. Give your hurts to God and trust that justice will be fulfilled, that you can be free to forgive. Amen? Stand with me. God, we thank you for this story that, that sort of brings forgiveness into, into flesh, into life. And we read this and, and, and many of us can identify with it. We know how much we've been forgiven and yet, and yet God, we confess that we have such a hard time forgiving others. So God, I pray that as we sing and as we worship this song, that your spirit would come, that you would transform us. Not because we memorize a list of five principles, but because your Holy Spirit would, would fill us with grace, that we would be new creations from the inside out. That your mercy would come now. And, and even as we worship, some of us may be called to kneel, to kneel on our seats and confess and lay down the areas of unforgiveness. 
We may be called to kneel and, and, to, and to call out to you the situations and the people that have hurt us, that once and for all, God, we could be free from the weight and the burden of unforgiveness. Give us grace to reflect and imitate you, to forgive as we have been forgiven only by your grace, by your mercy. We thank you for Christ, and we offer up this song of worship now as a prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to us. Free us that we could walk in compassion just as you have been compassionate to us. Come work among us.